Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 366 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Today we are talking about all things chickens and giving some updates from the Miller Homestead. Yes, back in episode 340, Allie Updates and Q&A, we talked about my transition to the hill country home that we had built and we were just moved in we were recording in the attic which we thought was a great idea and yes, like unfinished yes, yeah decided no we'll just record in my office which is a more comfortable space uh so i'll just be sharing things that i've learned since moving in about my rain barrel and just kind of where we're at after surviving this intensive Texas drought, uh, recording this at the end of September. Yes. And today's episode will have a lot of chicken content just from our own kind of learnings. I got them back in February and then I think you followed shortly thereafter, like early March, I want to say. I know. I'm trying to remember. We moved in Easter weekend and so it was that following weekend. Okay. Okay. So So it was April. April. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Mine were a Valentine's day present to myself. Love it. Uh, We'll be talking all things that we've learned so far, do's and don'ts and whatnot, as chicken noobs. Yes, our personal learning. So this will not be the expert chickens episode, but you guys have loved seeing me feature my flock on my Instagram stories. And, you know, most of you listening maybe know what cocky looks like, our rooster. Uh, So excited to just kind of unpack the wrong turns, the right turns, and how I'll do things going forward and what I see happening in our space down by the orchard. Yeah. Before we do all that, let's just have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Peak State Coffee. Yes. Peak State Coffee makes coffee with health benefits. So they first start with quality, non-GMO, low-acid, mold-free tested beans, and then they infuse adaptogenic tinctures to these to include a synergistic effect that serves as a nootropic, literally turning on and boosting your brain while also modulating and balancing out your stress response. In each serving of Peak State Coffee, you're going to get 500 milligrams of lion's mane, reishi, chaga in a smooth, delicious coffee experience. So this is not like other adaptogenic beverages on the market that use a coffee replacement. Again, this is a mold-free, non-GMO, low-acid, chemical-free coffee. It is lovely in flavor profile. My husband, Brady, is totally a coffee nerd, and he gave the stamp of approval when we met two years ago at KetoCon, and I've been repping Peak State Coffee ever since. They have also a really awesome cold brew product that you can purchase that has this same integration or um, synergy of the adaptogens in there and that's really lovely with a splash of raw milk and a scoop of our naturally nourished pure collagen uh, go on over to peakstatecoffee.com slash allymillerrd when you use the code allymillerrd you will save 20 percent off your order 
All right, let's start off with the homestead. So yes, last time we talked about this, you guys had just, just moved in. I think you uh-huh. still had stuff in boxes probably um, and are now like way more settled. You've got things growing. You've had yes. a season in your garden. Um, so let's just break it down. What's happening at the Miller Homestead? Yeah, so we recorded an episode back. I don't know the number, but we can include it with uh, Tammy from Hamilton Pool Farms. And she did the first round of planting in our fall garden. And so when we did last updates, I would have been referencing that garden. Uh, And we did our drip irrigation around that time. Uh, We also built the beds, Brady and I, ourselves. Um, And so we have eight operational garden beds currently. As we're recording this, this is uh, kind of mid September and we will be doing some seeding direct in the beds one of these next upcoming days, uh, we really wanted to wait for the intensive Texas heat to cut. And it just keeps revisiting us with love. I I think everyone's garden is like several weeks behind at this point. Yes. So we're not following, you know, the seed pack instructions. We've, I've talked to a lot of different growers specifically in the Wimberley Valley area. So, um, Skylar at Dirt Candy Farms, um, talked with Dylan at Songland Farms, and they've both have, you know, said, you know, this is kind of a choose your own adventure start time. I did some garden starts already for this fall season. So we have broccoli going, we have shishito peppers, because in our region, we can grow those all the way through the fall. And I just love them with carnitas. Uh, We have also... Let's see, cabbage, two different varietals of cabbage that I started. We started our lacinato kale and another varietal of boar kale and uh, rainbow chard. So those are ones that we'll all be using as transplants in the next coming weeks. And I'm going to start sowing direct seeds, but something we had to troubleshoot, which we'll talk about when we get into chickens, is that they are robust flyers my chickens <laughs> and I let them help me turn my burned out garden beds starting August really once things were done we got through all of our tomatoes just lovely we planted our spring garden in March um, and that's probably about when we had recorded the last updates and I'm not sure if we had covered the fruit trees that we had purchased but at this time we have 18 fruit trees and five citrus trees in potted plants and we had bought berries that we just did not get in the ground and they all passed. Yeah, ours didn't make it either. Yeah, and we they got were in the ground. Blackberries, so mulberries. Um, so we're going to try that again in March when we're ready. And um, now that we've gotten our, our feet, if you will, with the orchard so far. Um, some of the updates there, our drip irrigation system is okay. We're, we're using Dripworks, which we can link in the episode. Um, this is what a lot of greenhouses use, and um, it's basically like kinetic toys where they have the different pieces, so T-valves and L-valves, etc. cetera. And um, we did all of the drip. I mean, it was dug up and piped up with PVC for us by our landscape architect, uh, but then we did all of the kind of kinetic pieces for our gardens, and for our orchard, we have uh, more, not using the tape irrigation, but we're using the PVC leads mm-hmm. there. Um, and, and do you guys have tape or PVC in your garden for the... Uh, we have PVC that Byron buried and goes up, and then it's, I guess it's called tape. It's like the foam-looking hose Okay, situation. that's more of like a drip hose. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, with the little holes in it. And so far, so good. We've had it a couple of seasons. Now. Love it. 
cool. So that's always something to problem solve, irrigation. Um, and so something that we are both working with is irrigation timers. Um, you can program timers on site. Uh, I will link our irrigation system also in the show notes. And there's been troubleshooting, adjusting based on you know the intensive heat uh, that we've had at times. So we did do some double watering at periods of time. Uh, and with our orchard, our irrigation system has been a lot more finicky. We've had a lot more busted pipe and troubleshooting there. The mineral deposits with well water, I think, perform very differently mm-hmm. than municipal water, which has different solute level of mineral. And so irrigation systems get really stressed with a lot more variability in water pressure when you're on a well and then also the deposits. Um, so that's something that's been interesting learning about and adapting to. And in the heat, we had to do a lot of preparation to help to support hydration for our fruit trees. So we used MicroLife and the MicroLife product that has the seaweed preparation. Mm-hmm. And we were using capful per um, tree and trying to do that at least weekly starting mid-July. And next year, I I saw my friend Taylor from Rome Ranch doing really cool, robust mineral deposits that, of course, like he puts in like a cow horn. Right. (laughs) The whole thing we talked about with Tammy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So he did some of the biodynamic applications, but I don't know. He had this really cool like sprayer on his Ranger or Polaris or whatever that was just kind of. Uh, spraying across their new fruit orchard that they have. Uh, and I've been talking to other farming friends about what they're doing. And so I want to have a more, much more pro-vigilant, proactive plan for all of my orchard next season. I'm going to make sure that, that is happening by spring. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I just feel like we got smacked in the face. We ended up losing four trees and we're hopeful only four trees at this point. Yeah. Um, but we ha- did start seeing new growth once we started using the microlife. Okay, got it. Yeah, and that can help with the kind of stress tolerance of the plants using like a liquid seaweed um, mineral, you know, emulsion type of, of product. We use a liquid form in our garden yep. beds too. Uh, but we just had 100, you know, degree days for like 40 plus days. Yes, straight and like 106. Here. Yeah. Um, we did not get on this well, but we did mulching, remulching twice during the summer. I would have done that a lot mm-hmm. more proactively. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps to like retain the, the moisture in the soil mm-hmm. and kind of protect it as an extra layer. Yeah. Yes. And then reflect the sun. Yep. Ideally, even if you can then do like pine straw I've done in garden beds mm-hmm. in the past or actually just using straw. But the concern with straw is mold in your gardens then and moisture trap. Uh, But those tend to reflect that bright sunlight, you know, in those peak hours uh, so that it doesn't bake down. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We want to talk rain. Sun plan. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So rain barrel, um, I've learned a lot more since we've talked about updates there. So our orchard area is on a well and that is in the Trinity Aquifer, which we drilled into instead of the Edwards. Uh, because the Edwards shares with Austin and we just feel it's going to be stressed more. Um, So we went a little bit deeper for the Trinity. Uh, And then we only use that down there, but we use our rain barrel for our home. 
And I will say in our home, we don't do any landscape irrigation. And so that's a huge impact on demand for water. Uh, so as I talk about what we've used and our demands, that's a huge caveat <laughs> to say. Uh, we have a 40,000 gallon barrel and we did not need to toggle to our well at one time during this summer, even though we were in a severe drought. And you know we moved in right before that season, it was April. Um, and so we got through the thick of it uh, by using our exclusive source of water for showers, dishwashers, uh, our washing machine for clothing, hand sinks, of course, and toilets. So that's pretty much the water demand. Drinking water, of course, cooking water. Um, what's lovely about rain barrel collection is that's your water source for all of it. So it's that first catch rain water that you use like in your toilets and your sinks and your, and just kind of clarifying that. Cause I guess I didn't know that I figured maybe there'd be like a gray water utilization system within our own in-house septic system. Uh, but when you're in a more rural space, you have your own septic. And so that's going to spray somewhere on your property. It's treated on your property. All of the water from first catch goes through that septic system and then exits your house through sprayers. Uh, and so we're using that rainwater for all of our functional needs. And we went from full barrel when we moved in and that depleted to not even the 50%. I'd say at max, maybe one third was utilized. So we got to like down to two thirds. Okay. And really there hasn't been a whole lot of rain to right. speak of. A couple blips here and yes. there. but. Not a whole heck of a lot. And like you said, you're not doing any landscapes. So there's no lawn to water, which I think that's yes. a big suck of water for most households. Right. And honestly, I'm just very blessed that that's something that my husband doesn't stress about mm -hmm. and is okay with because it's just for me, not financially or environmentally, something that I want to prioritize. Totally. Um, we have a total, it's not a zero scape in the sense that it's like manicured granite places, but it's just like a zero scape, meaning like we have done zero <laughs> with it. Um, and so it's just, you know, wild weeds basically growing around our yard. Um, and so that's a thing. We do have little beds like around the perimeter of our house. And um, then our pool does have a, a refill um, system. So because water evaporates from a pool, um, the pool was initially filled with like Culligan water or whatever, you know, water was delivered for the pool filling. So that would have totally hit our tank, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, and then the uh, re-catch and the little perimeter gardens are actually run on our well. So we trench that up for those things instead of using our rain barrel. Got it. Okay. Yep. Um, and then with the rain barrel collection, you want to tell us about like the filter and how that all Yeah. Works? Yeah. I think it's so interesting. Sure. So um, basically you collect via the rain that falls on your roof and uh, you have to have gutters to capture. And along the gutters are going to be multiple different screens that capture sediment. Um, and then there's going to be also at each tank and what's really lovely also to consider is that we have a very heavy tree area but we have very good clearance around our roof uh, because the more obviously like if you have big old trees over your roof that creates a lot more debris that can create a lot more uh, buildup in your system so something to consider is like clearance if you're installing a rain barrel system um, then there's going to be screens at the tank as well um, and there's big grinders at the tank you know to remove any sediment and such 
And, you know, rain in general collects very few salts and minerals. Um, it's obviously not going to have the treatment chemicals or pharmaceuticals that we would have in municipal tap water. We'll link our all about water episode because that's super relevant where we shared like, you know, bottled water, false, good, better, best choices, and then reverse osmosis and home systems, et cetera. Um, but you know, the big thing more with rainwater, we don't worry about those types of things, but it can collect more pollen or dust if it's not filtered properly. So if you're doing like a home purchase of a rain barrel, maybe it's somewhere between 500 gallons or, you know, a couple thousand gallons, making sure that the filtration is legit. Um, and also that it has, you want to make sure it has a carbon and a UV filter. Um, and so, you know, the UV is going to actually fight pathogen, um, so this could be like E. coli or anything growing in your tank. The carbon is going to still trap like large deposits of minerals, or this is where, you know, pollen or dust could be gathered as a chelator, if you will. Um, and then there should also be a sediment filter. And so those are all set up in my garage. So as the water goes through the big tank, there's all that kind of grinding breakdown of sediment. Then it sits in the tank and goes up to the garage where it goes through sediment, carbon, and UV filter. And um, they've done tests where, for instance, you know, in that tank, there could be E. coli in the water, but then they've tested once it goes through that UV, that that's what actually would kill, again, pathogen um, as far as anything that could be living in the environment. Okay. Um, And then do you have to like maintain the tank at all to keep it clean or flush it or like what happens yeah so you do flushes uh by on the valves especially leading into the tank um so like all that sludge goes through and then you drain those quarterly not the full tank but the the flush valves um and one of the biggest things that we were told beyond tree placement that's important is you want to make sure ideally that your tank is at least two feet below your gutter Um, So that's hard as you go for a big tank. So ideal setting would be a house that's on a hill, like mine's uh, progressively down the slope of our hill so that the top of the barrel, which is still a good 20 feet high, is still two feet below the bottom of my roof or the gutter. Um, And so that allows ergonomics, obviously, for gravity, for better um, movement. There's not stagnation in the pipes. Whereas otherwise, if it wasn't downhill and it was even on a grade, there's not going to be natural movement of the water. And so there'll be a lot more buildup. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like how much roof do you actually need? Yeah. These were all like of, really fun facts. Um, and so, yeah, so the water's lovely. We've loved having it. Um, the estimation is that you want a thousand square foot of roof per person of a household to be sufficient. So for a ranch house, you double your walkable square footage Um, And so if it's a one-story home and it's a 2,000-square-foot house, that would be, in theory, depending on how the roof is designed, around 4,000 square feet of roof. Um, And so that's kind of how the calculation goes, and that's why it's advantageous. Uh, When we built our house, we wanted a ranch style versus doing like a second floor, where then you would half your roof collection, obviously, because you're on top. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so that's important to think about if you're designing a green home, et cetera. Um, the guesstimation for design of water systems is usually on like 65 gallons of use per day per person, 
which sounds crazy. And from what we've seen deplete and just kind of doing that math, we estimate that we're under 35 gallons a person per day, um, just in how me, Brady, and Stella live. So sure. that's just, yeah, just yeah. us again, but we're not doing some of those added. I think that includes irrigation as a buffer and those Got types it. of okay. things. Okay. Um, and so, you know, it's not super outlandish, um, but having that amount of tank to hold what you capture and then accounting for drought. Um, so like I said, our is ours is 40,000 gallon. Uh, and I believe that that's the largest residential model that, is available. Um, our neighbors next door have a similar sized house, but have a 35,000 gallon barrel. They've had to drive in, but they have a lot of landscaping and I think they're using their water there. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, got it. Okay. Yes. Anything else in the world of rainwater before we move Let's on see. to chickens? Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't think so. I think okay. just, you need to have a secondary option for sure. Yeah. You need mm-hmm. to make sure that your water is tested and, um, you're going to want to probably still go on a trace mineral formula. Um, because you know, you're not getting the mineral like you would from well, et cetera. And sure. I think that's just helpful for everyone. Okay. All right. And then a big part of homesteading and food freedom has also been chicken keeping. For yes. You. For both um, of us. Yeah. And so, um, I got the chicks in February and then you got them in April and mm-hmm. baby chicks are just the cutest. They don't stay small for long. Yes. Uh, feels like a million years ago already that we could like hold them in, you know, the palm of our hand. Uh, but let's talk just breed selection and preparing for having chicks. Yeah. And uh, along the way, we'll just kind of be loose in this episode on surprises, etc. cetera. Uh, so I got the chicks the weekend before I went away to uh, an event at Rome Ranch. And I remember because my parents were in town watching Stells and I had to have my dad use moist paper towel on all of their my butts. 14 chicks, yes, at that time, <laughs> to wipe their butts so that they didn't get what's it called, muck butt or something like Pasty that. Butt. Pasty, Pasty butt. Pasty butt. It's when they're vent, um, which is where their pee, poop, and eggs all yes. collectively come out. Um, and it's basically you're wiping their little chicken butthole mm-hmm. because right. if they get yep. if they get basically back up, they'll go through sepsis yep. and their intestines will explode and they'll die. Yep. So we don't yep. want that. Yep. Uh, so that was a surprise for me. I didn't see that often covered in the quick reads I did. I purchased cuckoo marins, brown leghorns, well summers, and then got three Easter eggers from a friend, which that story will unfold as we go forward. <laughs> And then I ended up um, going to the feed store like early in the season. And so I was like, I'll take whatever I can get, I guess. And so um, there was one like unlabeled bin and I got from that bin what's called a barred rock, which she's actually my biggest chicken and my most prolific layer so far um, and just really docile and sweet. Um, I got a crusted Polish, which we call her Beyonce. And she's got like, <laughs> those are the ones with the funny, crazy hairdos um and i forget she's a specific kind that i think it's called it's not it's not ringing a bell i'll remember it soon but she's a specific kind that's frizzled um so she's even more like crazy looking with her feathers um and then i got which becky has to cut yes i have to cut her bangs so that she can see she would not make it in the wild um in terms of like being able to see danger coming. She reminds me of Hey Hey from Moana, yeah. like personality-wise, yeah. like just running into yes. things. Yes, <laughs> yep. Uh, that's a good description. <laughs> um, and then I got two silver spangled Hamburgs, or Hamburgs, um, which are a German breed, and these are considered death layers, meaning that once they start laying, they lay all the way until you know their lifespan, until they die, which um, 
not all chickens do. Usually that egg production will slow way down, you know, later in life. And that's when you decide to retire them or call them or yeah, you know, send them on their merry way. Um, and then I got four bantams, um, but didn't realize that bantam chickens um, of this particular variety only grow to about the size of like a pigeon. And so, <laughs> and of those four, I believe between two and four were roosters. Um, and so early on, once I kind of figured that out, um, we actually had someone come and take them to their uh, their ranch so we would have more space for just the four girls that we had. So I started with five, five, and five of the cuckoo marins, brown leghorns, and well summers. And then uh, early on, lost one of the cuckoo marins. They're kind of, of all of my breeds, the smallest. Yeah, and I think let's talk about when you bring them home, where you put them, and when they're ready for a coop, that yeah. whole thing. Yeah, yeah. That was all fun to explore. Yes, totally. So, you know, chickens that are chicks that are hatched in an incubator, they don't have the mama hen to sit on them and keep them warm and do all of those things. Um, so you want a brooder ready to go, you know, as soon as you get them home from the feed store or if you're hatching your own as soon as they hatch. Um, and so the first four to five weeks until they are what you call fully feathered or they've grown their feathers, they're kind of just fuzzy and cute and like the quintessential little, you know, Easter chick um, that you see. Uh, but they don't actually have like true feathers yet. So four to five weeks. Um, and we kept ours in the garage because February it was still quite cold and we yeah. got a big tall um stock tank like a livestock you know drinking trough and use that with um just a wire covering to keep our cat out and to keep them in while byron worked on building our yeah coop. so they stayed in that actually a little bit longer than i would have personally liked um we did transfer them to like an intermediate coop um probably at like the six week mark they're pretty big when they turn yeah. into what you call pullets, you like that six, six to eight. When you, yeah. yeah. And I think, so we transferred, I just did a Tupperware. It was like a large black industrial sized Tupperware. We hooked the heat lamp on there. We had the pine shavings in the bottom. There was enough room for them to be in the heat lamp, but also to have some area that wasn't heated so they could regulate. And uh, at the time I had 15 of them and it worked just fine. Mm -hmm. They kind of keep each other warm. Yeah, yeah. They like to like flock up, of course. And then we did like shallow water, shallow feeds. They wouldn't mm -hmm. drown, et cetera. And then check in their booties. And then at five weeks, we ended up putting ours right into the full um, chicken coop, if you will. Uh, at first we thought we needed to parcel something out. Maybe I should have in hindsight because after transferring them, we did have one that I think was kind of pecking ordered down and I actually thought it was one of the cuckoo marins I actually had thought that it had died and then put it in the field and it found its way back the next morning it was like oh it came back and then put it back into the coop and then the next morning those chicks or pullets at that time made sure that it was dead mm. uh so uh -huh. it maybe they would have done better with a tighter space and maybe all that space allowed you know too much something but yeah, you yeah. live, you learn. Yeah. And I mean, chickens are this, you know, flock species. And so when they see a vulnerability like that in yep. their flock, they're like, we're going to have to take care of this, unfortunately. Yes. Right. And that's part of the pecking order is actually to keep them safe from predators is to peck off the lesser <laughs> species, if you will. Mm -hmm. No doubt. And so you keep that heat lamp, even when you transfer them likely from the brooder into the coop. And so you kind of can measure this based on the weeks old of the chick is, is what I saw in my reading about chickens. And so 
the idea is that you can reduce the temperature by five degrees every week as the chicks go grow bigger and you can also match that though with the temperature outside so like becky probably had to have a heat lamp longer starting in february whereas my purchase in april uh you know once they were going from that drop of that 95 degrees um you know 5 10 15 20 once we hit 70 degrees quite early on we were able to turn that heat lamp off yeah Yep, and you can look at their behavior too. So when mm-hmm. chicks are cold, they're going to huddle together. They're going to cheep a lot louder. Um, whereas if they have too much heat, they're going to be far away, kind yes. of distanced out. You're going to see them, you know, panting um, and signs that they're too hot. So also, you know, observing them multiple times a day, I think helps to to keep them safe. No doubt. And we would use the heat lamp at night mm-hmm. for a longer period of time yeah. when the temperatures drop. Yeah. So obviously so there's some circadian elements there following the sun and, and temp fluctuations. Totally. Okay. So shelter is kind of a basic need check. Um, let's talk food and um, what we're feeding them. Yeah. Okay. You want to start with your yeah. feed? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the one I've come to use, and I just went to the feed store, um, which is actually seven minutes from my house. It's like Noah's favorite place to go now because, you know, they have baby bunnies. And, I love it. Um, in the spring, they had tons and tons of chicks and ducklings and baby turkeys and even pigs and goats at some occasions. Uh, but I just went there and talked to them. I was like, I'm looking for a feed that is soy-free, corn-free and non-GMO, you know, organic. Um, and Texas Natural Feeds actually is a local company. So we started with the Chick Starter. Um, and Chick Starter has a little bit less of some of the necessary minerals in it. Um, it's got 20% crude protein, so a little more protein actually than what you feed your layers a little bit later on. Um, and it just has a little bit less calcium and sodium and phosphorus, I believe. Um, but some of the highlights of ingredients are um, peanut meal, oats, fish meal. They actually put um, bentonite clay in it, um, some fermentation products, so some probiotics. Um, there's diatomaceous earth right in the actual feed, which we'll talk about pest management in a little bit, but that can protect against intestinal parasites and other mm-hmm. infections. Um, and their feed serves as kind of the bare bones basic, especially as you know, baby chicks. I wanted to make sure they were getting all of their needs versus trying to guess and you know make my own product. No doubt. So I found another really good company that I'm using as the feed. It's H and H, and it's also it's also a Texas company, and it's their old fashioned starter for growing chickens that I started, similar to what Becky noted. But there's some fat soluble vitamins in here, and then this has things like kelp and molasses. Both of them have diatomaceous earth. Uh, this one has flax and sunflower. There's highlights on their website about some of the like functional ingredients, if you will. They add um, dehydrated seaweed meal, for instance, and then have a good array of different probiotics. So they have the Lactobacillus planetarium, Lactobacillus casei, um, and name a good amount, the Bacillus coagulans, um, et cetera. It looks like seven or eight different types of probacteria in here. They even have Saccharomyces cerevisiae in here. And um, then they have a really good mineral blend that they have patented as like their chicken multi, if you will, also soy free and not genetically modified. Um, and then in the, um, feed that is for layers, 
they pop sorghum. Um, so that's kind of just fun. The chicken's like eating it. <laughs> so it's like little like popcorn, pops of popcorn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've had that at some restaurants where they pop sorghum. Yeah, and yeah, so it's yeah. a fun texture. Uh, and they use this fair Terrell is their hundred percent organic vitamin, mineral, and microbial top quality supplement. And that's what they mix into all their feeds, just changing like the nutritional profile. Um, and the other thing I'll call it about feeds is just making sure that you use the word unmedicated mm-hmm. if you're purchasing from a feed store, because majority of chicken feeds are going to have, um, either growing hormone agents and or antibiotics. Yes. I think really good to call out. Um, And then at that 16-week mark, like right before they start to lay, you switch them from a chick starter, which is kind of like a more crumbled texture. And like I said, a slight difference in the formulation. Um, You switch them to a layer feed, which is going to have more calcium. And that's when they can also go to either larger pellets or we still do a crumble. It's just easier to digest. So having a quality base, looking for organic vitamin, mineral supplementation in there likely, and some form of probiotic and then microbial regulators like the diatomaceous earth, I think are big highlights. And then uh, you can always add in like some fortifying food as medicine or functional food elements. So flaxseed is a really great way to, of course, increase the omega-3s in the yolk. We get omega-3s also from the pasteurizing of the bird. So putting them out in the pasture, Um, it's not pasteurization of heating, but using them in the pasture, allowing them to free roam, allowing them to get in the garden beds and eat at the oak tree leaves, et cetera, is a great way to up that omega-3 ratio as well. But adding ground flax can be great. Um, Looking at the type of grain that you are using, like millet can be a really great mineral rich and B vitamin rich option. There's been some studies on millet to support in the winter months for warmth and also So making sure that they regulate their energy and temperature. Uh, Kelp is something that can be ground up and added into feed for trace minerals. And this can also support the the laying, excuse me, of birds. And we see that kelp can actually increase egg production. It can um, increase the iodine content of your eggs, of course, darken the yolk and the skin or color of the bird, strengthen the egg shell as another element. And then um, sunflower seeds were another one that came up big in a lot of the research on supporting egg production and also just robust vitality within the birds. Okay. And then let's talk like other kind of add in food as medicine for chickens or scraps that you can give them that would be beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we like to make sure that we are using things that can support bacterial balance in the Mm. body. So herbs are really fantastic here. Um, You can just put fresh herbs in their coop also, like using rosemary sprig in the corner or hanging. Um, My chickens love eating basil. Um, They'll really eat anything growing in my garden. Um, But marigolds are a fantastic one and that can support the color of the yolk as well and get like a nice rich robust orange yeah yeah we grew marigolds just for the chickens um i put like little potted herbs in their coop at first because i was like oh this will be so cute they have their own <laughs> herbs and they decimated them in literally yes. less than a day yes <laughs> um so now i just sprinkle a blend of that into their bedding because that can help with past regulation of like rosemary oregano garlic lavender mm-hmm. those kind of things and then i also will give some in their feed and kind of toss to them Yes. Awesome. And we've been doing with a sourdough starter 
some of that discard that you have um, as a way to bust up probiotic um, benefits. But also that's like where I'll put some of those medicinals um, because it becomes like a sloopy sludge. So I'll throw pumpkin seeds in there, which can be antiparasitic or a natural dewormer. And then that's a good vehicle for those herbs too. Yep. Um, I'd call out apple cider vinegar. I use this um, quite frequently in their water and have done it since they were chicks. Um, So that can help with keeping the water clean because it gets quite mucky yes after just you know a day of them kicking stuff in there um preventing growth of algae bacteria and it's also going to aid in digestion and prevention of again that microbial overgrowth i like that i haven't done that and i'm always having to bring a scrub brush i have a luckily a sink down there by their coop connected to the well but i think that i'll have to start putting some acd in there to help with that that's perfect uh garlic is fantastic it's important to note that they don't have any threshold for spice in the world of capsaicin uh so putting like spicy red peppers Mm -hmm. would be another good one for like that robust immune response and getting those bright rich carotenoids for the color of the yolk yes uh, and then I was going to say garlic because I was just thinking of garlic as being a different type of spiciness, if you will, but a great way to also be a natural intestinal dewormer um, and support immune as an antibacterial. Yeah. And you mentioned um, giving them sourdough discard, um, giving other forms of probiotic rich foods too. Um, I've heard of like giving yogurt to your mm-hmm. chickens. If there's yeah. like leftover yogurt for my kids yeah. um, in the morning, I'll give them, you know, plain unsweetened I think ideal um, or giving yogurt like with some of the herbs for them to kind of pack on that can work really nicely too sure and when I think yogurt it is important to note the importance of calcium absorption as you noted the base feed will increase in calcium as they switch to the layers feed but um, actually grinding up egg shell is another great way to support just like breastfeeding mamas do really well with drinking raw milk um, actually supporting your chickens by putting that shell back into their feed you can just kind of sprinkle it in when you scoop in their feed Uh, that's a great way to boost calcium bioavailability but it is important to make sure that you are doing that or cooking eggs if offering them eggs because otherwise you will support kind of a cannibalistic impact where then they will start to pack at their own eggs that they're laying um i had one fall off of a table once and the whole flock just oh, yeah. ate it yeah, so yeah. rapidly had that happen uh, mm-hmm. and i was worried for a little bit that then they'd start picking at their they own get a taste for eggs, eggs. Yeah. Yeah, yes yeah. so you do want to kind of you know grind that down have it in a different form yes um so you are getting eggs I am getting eggs. How long did that take for yours? So mine actually started the first round was right at the 16 week mark. Okay. Uh, so we switched our food earlier just cause we ran out logistic wise, I think at like week 14 and, um, we started getting one or two eggs. They were teeny tiny yeah. and you were like, Oh no, they look like the, um, what was the breed you got the rid of? Bantams, the, the little, bantams, the quail egg type. Yes. Uh, but they have fully grown into a good medium sized egg. And at this juncture I have 13 hens and cocky my rooster still I named him cocky and uh we are getting about 10 eggs a day so it seems like you know more than almost now 90 percent 80 something percent are laying yeah 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 mine started in one of them started in July it was biggie who's just so much bigger um and then the other one started just like when the temperature dropped literally a week or two ago yeah um and so Let's hit on heat, Becky, because I think that, you know, we noted on changes in our garden with that. 
Um, but that was my biggest stressor with keeping these chickens alive because I got them in the spring. Mm-hmm. Keeping them warm wasn't really a big concern for me, but the heat really put them through a lot. Um, and so I very quickly started looking into understanding how to keep chickens cool in the peak summer months. Yes, I started following like all kinds of Instagram and Facebook groups of you know Texas chicken keepers and whatnot. Got some good ideas from there. So we did a lot of like icing them down kind of um, where I would do their food and water, you know, first thing early in the morning and then midday come out and put out shallow. um, I just used the like shallow aluminum type pans that you might like get catering orders in or something like that. Okay, gotcha. The square rectangle. Um, And I would fill those with water and ice. Um, I did some like frozen herb ice cubes where I would freeze like whatever herbs I had. Um, and edible flowers. They just looked really pretty, honestly, um, but froze them in ice cubes and would bring that out to them. Oh, you were like one of those um, fancy people on Instagram. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I didn't Instagram and I shut up. Um, and then frozen blueberries, they like went crazy yes. for those. Um, frozen fruit, cucumber and watermelon were like huge hits. So anytime we had a watermelon, I would give, you know, all of the scraps and they'll eat it right way down to the rind, like eat mm-hmm. the white part too. Um, how about you guys? So we did all of what you said, uh, except for the fancy ice cubes, (laughs) but we were filling, we had an ice maker. So we were filling a full Yeti backpack and bringing it down, putting ice into their water container. And then in, I was just using like terracotta, terracotta, like pot saucers and they would stand in it. Um, I saw that they cool off through their feet. Uh, so we did a lot of like standing trays with ice. I sprayed down their run sometimes twice a day, but at least daily. So then I would find them like around 4 p.m. I would spray them down right prior to that. And um, because out here, we really peak our heat at four Um, instead of like the 12 to two, we're more of like a three to six kind of peak. And so uh, I would water their run down and then they would lay in the cold, wet mud as a way to regulate. Um, and also they like mud as a source and grit, um, that can help them regulate mites and they need grit actually in their diet to support their digestion. So the way our coop works, we have a run that is, I think, um, 20 by 12. Um, and then that is a four foot high fence. And then we have a door that can open into our high fenced eight foot three-quarter shy of a three-quarter um acre area and then inside of that we have another four foot around our orchard and our gardens so in theory i can sequentially let them into these like paddocks if you will and still let them fully roam while keeping them safe in the eight foot perimeter Um, and i will say of the three deaths that i've had none have been from a predator Mm -hmm. and that's something i was super paranoid about we weren't sure if we would have to put like chicken wire from the eight foot on the other eight foot above it and that would just look weird and be expensive um the deaths that i had was that first chick with the transition to the coop with the pecking order and then i had one at the end of august i believe from heat stroke and i actually had one this morning weird and timely of recording um which i believe also had a stroke and and i think it was there was a really intensive thunder and lightning storm and also our heat had revved back up in the last three days so maybe the combo of those two stressors hit her yeah 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 and i think you know having chickens um you just know that at some point you're gonna deal with death right 
Yeah. And we haven't yet. Yes. Wood, so these two losses, it's interesting. I was telling Becky this morning, it's like definitely different than, you know, I'm, I'm all about snout to tail and breaking down a whole animal. And I played a role in slaughtering my turkey for Thanksgiving last year at Rome Ranch um, and made total peace with that. But when it's like an accidental and worthless death, you know, like no one is able to nourish from it. Um, and it just, it just feels heavier or sadder. Um, and, uh, you know, you want to make sure that there wasn't something that you could have done to prevent it. Um, and so in both of these, it didn't seem like there was a problem that we could have quote unquote solved. Um, so we'll just kind of keep watching. And now I think we still have a pretty robust flock from our 13 hens and, and one rooster. And I've read the ratio is 10 to one of hen to, to rooster. So if we go for eight more, which we will probably in February, March, we'll maybe keep a rooster if we get one. We got rid of two roosters early on, which is kind of fun story. Um, I got three Easter eggers on top of the 15. So I had 18 at one point, lost the chick and then um, had 17. Chicken math. Yes, I know, right? It's chicken math. Uh, and there were these two white, I was calling them, they, they were Easter egg or roosters, but I thought that they were just like the Bash sisters and they were just like beating up on cocky all the time. And I was like, there's these two really powerful, you know, sister chickens uh, and found out by posting on Instagram, a lot of you guys were like, um, those are 110% roosters. It was, so it was the tail feathers for me. Yes. And they were green. They're more of like a sickle. They didn't have a comb. And I have some of my hens have larger combs. And that's what I didn't. Mm -hmm. I was too much of a chicken noob. So I feel like I earned my stripes figuring that out. And, uh, you know, through like our facebook of my small town did a little like post and then had a chicken exchange and you've had a chicken exchange so that's like a badge of honor of like handing off (laughs) yeah your product i don't know right right yes so we'll see all right let's cover a little bit more on scraps and what they shouldn't eat maybe I think so we've talked about things to like support to amend oh the last thing I want to mention to add in are the pop worms which I know we both use um you know they have all sorts of mealworm products a lot of them are from China pop worms are from Texas and they have probiotic in them which is a cool thing to throw like you said in the shavings of the coop that helps them to turn it so that there's not like stagnant feces reduces bacteria and it's something they're going to kind of search for so it helps them break down the mass yeah, Noah loves feeding popworms to the chicken. He he like wants to give them the entire bag at once. <laughs> and I have to be like, no, just take this little cup at a time. But it's super cute. Yeah. Also a good way to like entice them back to their coop if they're not wanting to go in. Yeah. Um, treat. Yeah, little treat. That's something I've been super surprised with is how social the chickens are. And, um, you know, like mine, when I'm coming down the hill, they there are two particular Josies that come running aggressively. And they're like my wanted to be held the yeah. most chickens, the most personable. To, with that being said, I'm not the type of person who's riding a bicycle with my chicken. Um, and I don't hold them for fun. Um, I mean, they're cute. Little photo op, little moment here or there. But um, I was surprised on how much they engage with humans. And they know me as their main person. Yeah, I only have one that will let me pick her up. It's Biggie. She likes does the squat thing. I don't know if any of yours do that. Uh-huh. Um, but pretty much once they start laying eggs, they like become a little bit more docile. Yeah. Um, and so when you go for her, she'll just squat down and let you pick her. That's like my two right Josies. Up. Yep. Um, and she's she's a big girl, but the other ones don't really allow it. I have to have Byron help me trim Beyonce's um, <laughs> hair, and then the little Death Layer twins are just 
really fast, like roadrunner fast and oh my goodness, kind of crazy. Well, before, last thing before we go into foods, because we'll wrap there on trimming. That's my last share that I can think of that I want to brain dump on my chicken experiences is as I kind of walked you guys through like the parameter of my garden space and whatnot, um, because mine are robust flyers, they've learned to not just fly to the four foot, but they fly on top of the eight foot. Um, and so they like to perch. And so since my fence has a two by four, um, you know, they have more than enough, like a, it's basically like a roosting rack to them. And so they fly up to the four foot and then they go from the four foot to the eight foot and they stand, stand up high and eat the cedar trees. Uh, I'm definitely worried about if they fell off or flew to the wrong side, they wouldn't be able to fly the whole eight feet on their own. <laughs> so they'd be screwed. Uh, and also, you know, I'm worried about chicken hawks getting them up there they're much more vulnerable of course and now that they can easily fly the forefoot into my gardens once I sow my seeds I don't want those chickens to fly in and eat those seeds right, right. away yeah so we will be clipping their wings I've learned that you only have to clip a wing not both um, and that you can get very simple shears and there's a very clear way of telling where to clip and I'll update you on that when I finish that project. Yeah, you've got quite a few. I feel them. like that's earning a stripe for sure. It sure is. That can help you with that if you want. <laughs> we'll be good. All right. Um, so scraps and what else we feed them. So chickens will eat almost anything. They're omnivores. Um, there are some foods you shouldn't feed to chickens. So mm -hmm. amongst those Avocado is a big one, um, which was a big surprise for me. And it's the flesh, the uh, pit, and the skin can cause toxicity. They say that just 5% of an avocado can kill a small bird. And so that's been one thing that I have to train myself, you know, instead of a and compost. Yeah, yeah. Instead of a compost bucket now, we just have a chicken scrap right, bucket. But right. my kids eat so many avocados that I have to remember not to put that in there. Mm -hmm. Um, and even if they do make it out there, I've never seen them touch it. So I also think there's an innate, you know, wisdom. Totally. Um, white potatoes, I guess are not supposed to be eaten, um, by chickens. And I think it's specifically the high solanine content. Yeah. Um, so that whole nightshade family, um, I believe you're just not supposed to give them a lot of right. like eggplant peppers or tomatoes. Although mine, ate plenty of tomatoes this yes, summer. Yes, mine did tons of the ripe garden mm -hmm. tomatoes. But like you said, they, they didn't go for them if they weren't ripe. And um, also, I did not give them the tomato leaves or like plant parts, you know, if we were moving things around the garden sure, or something yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and then like fruit pits, apple seeds. Again, they're mostly going to avoid that and just pack around it. But like the seeds of an apple. Um, onions, that's another big surprising one and I think it's more so like you wouldn't want to give them you know half of an onion right. or the discards of like a chopped onion whereas like if it's mixed into a I've dish definitely and you're done caramelized them or sauteed leftovers or like a small amount yeah yes yeah. um caffeine I think that goes without saying so like stop putting your coffee grounds in the compost if it's going to the chickens yes. um and then moldy food so like overripe or wilted or stuff that's stale or about to go bad but you just wouldn't want to do the moldy stuff and then of course refined sugars and industrialized oils like don't give your chickens french fries and things like that but you know that's not going to be found in our right home foods. Yep, stuff that you wouldn't eat 
Yes. Because but you it, are what you eat and you're going to eat their eggs. Right? Yes. So true. And you know, it is really a cool feeling though, that it's so much more purposeful than a compost, which often sits and yes, it will biodegrade better than in a landfill, but you might not even be like using said compost or tending to it to actually make a nurturing soil based product. Uh, and so this is really cool knowing that they're really gaining dense nutrition from the byproducts of the foods that you nourish your family with. So it's the best investment and it feels really good of a way of limiting food scraps. Totally. Um, and then do we want to talk like pest prevention a little bit more? Sure, um, sure. we hit on the apple cider vinegar, probiotics and, um, diatomaceous earth. Um, but there are other natural compounds that you can use specifically for pest prevention and then for a natural worming solutions. Yeah. And what's lovely is that some of them happen really naturally. Uh, you know, we mentioned already watermelon and cucumber, and these are two that we bring in for hydration support in the summer, but these are also really fantastic natural worming plants. Uh, cayenne pepper, again, a great way to also keep pests out and also add that richness in the yolk. And that can just be added into the feed. Uh, just be mindful if you let your kids feed them. Right. Or if there's a breeze, you know, that, that can be quite volatile on the eyes. So be aware of that. We've used that in our garden and had that as an incident. Black pepper, carrots are a common one that they get from scraps. Uh, chicory, dill, garlic, all of the um, different herbs we mentioned. Nasturtium is interesting because it can also help with laying mm -hmm. or supporting, um, I guess, egg laying if, if they aren't producing. Yeah, we uh, grew them a ton of nasturtiums and then they got into that plant and just uh -oh. crushed it in a day. Yes. And then um, pumpkin is really fun and I've seen fun things about like getting your your uh, chickens to carve pumpkins so we'll see if, maybe i can handle that one maybe that, i won't make the fancy really rice cute cubes, just for instagram right yeah. just like put one in their coop and see what happens <laughs> <laughs> yes and then um, there's even things that you can use as natural diuretics or flushes to help to flush the chicken if they did have worms or there was a concern um, this could be plain yogurt dandelion greens or molasses so i love that molasses is included in our feed right. um, again that's something you could also put on top of the feed or in that blend of the discard from your sourdough or that big platter of plain yogurt okay and then food grade um, diatomaceous earth i think both of our feeds had that already in it this is also something i use all over the coop yep. and the run um, we had a lot of flies like early summer I want to say there was like serious fly invasion um, and I was like googling and trying to figure out what the heck to do and ended up just using way more diatomaceous earth and that kind of kept that at bay um, mixed in we have wood chips on the bottom of their run and then we let them out of their run every day to kind of free range within a certain part of our yard uh, that was a big learning of like you just don't want them on your deck and on your kids yeah. toys because there is just poop everywhere everywhere um, so we ended up getting like a mobile fence that we can kind of methodically move them around the yard to the areas where we do want them it's not perfect because it's just like a mesh fence with stakes but it keeps them well enough contained um, but the diatomaceous earth I also every time I refresh their coop I sprinkle more of that on the inside and even around like the laying boxes and everything and that helps to keep mites and flies and ants and other pests at bay and for instance when i went in this morning and found the dead chicken that's what i did is sprinkled diatomaceous earth under that space 
to just kind of serve as a proactive protector. And then I'll definitely be putting some fresh herbs in that area this evening and maybe even some garlic clove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Prevent vampires and everything else. Yes, right. Let's talk as we come to close uh, the coop details, Becky. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Mine's not as exciting. Mine was ordered from Cutest Coops. It is very cute. Um, but again, they are pooping all the time everywhere. Um, and so... I mean, we are constantly spraying everything down and it never looks like the pictures. Well, no. You're not going to have tea outside of the coop. Um, you know, it also smells. So we were happy for the function of it, um, but the fashion would not be worth the investment. <laughs> the function is great in the sense that we have a people side. So in the door, there's a screen that keeps the chickens in their coop side. In their coop side has four or five laying boxes and um, it has their roosting racks. And uh, I can, from the human side, not open the door and I can just flip open the laying nesting boxes and grab the eggs. And that part isn't all super grimy, disgusting. Um, and then uh, on their side, we do the high, what is it called, Becky, when we, the sh- shavings where we just keep them and turn it. Um, deep litter. Deep method. litter yeah. method of maintaining. Um, and the pine itself helps to reduce mites and such. Um, and then just those tricks like putting the herbs or the popworms in there helps to kind of churn it and you just kind of keep it going. Yep. Yep. Um, so we ended up building, well, we being Byron, um, built me a coop and because he's, you know, a trained engineer, like he doesn't really have a lot of carpentry experience, but I feel like he is one that will figure it out. So he like looked at all of these plans and watched so many YouTube videos and, designed this at first it was going to be a mobile chicken coop Um, and then we quickly learned that we don't have enough space for something like that yeah Um, and it's a sizable you know coop too it was intended for like eight to ten chickens is probably my max in that space and there's a certain amount of square feet that they need each I forget what that number is off the top of my head but I think two to three um, at least per bird or maybe it's more than that um but he made it pretty big and so thinking about that as a mobile thing you know it has like two wheels and you can in theory pick it up and move it but we were moving it all over the yard and we're like oh we're killing all of our grass yeah our kids play here um so it very quickly became like okay it can be mobile when it needs to but it stays parked um same thing he built the egg boxes on the outside so i can quick flip access those um and then we did um on the interior of the coop, um, we put down like some cheapo vinyl flooring um, so that we can like very easily clean it out. So um, I can push a wheelbarrow right up to the perfect level of the door. I can open either one or both doors and then um, just sweep everything out like with a big broom for easy cleaning, which is really nice. It is. So Becky's is way more elevated than mine, like three feet up, is it? So there's actually yeah. like a run yeah, direct yeah. below yeah. this coop area, which is nice. And then they still let them out in a fenced area. But um, I think that that's also really helpful probably for pest control. Yeah, no and doubt. Then, um, the automatic chicken door is a really nice feature that we added. Um, it's from a company called Run Chicken. We got the patriotic American flag one just for fun. Yes. Uh, but it has a... I know it has like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capability. I believe we turned that off, I hope. Um, and it just has a light sensor. So like when it's, you know, 
Oh, it's perfect. When the sun is coming up, it goes up. And then um, about 30 minutes after sunset, it will close. And it's not foolproof. Like I still go out there and check every night. I've had a few incidents of chickens being, you know, locked outside or they're up on the roof of their coop. And I'm like, what are you guys doing after dark? Um, But it's been really helpful just for like getting them, you know, outside. Awesome. Love it. Yes. Becky's is really incredible. Oh, Byron's always like Renaissance man with any of that type of thing. So yep, it's yep. happy. It yep. happened. Uh, let's just wrap things up with uh, pros, cons, and or surprises. Just kind of punch it out of this experience. So where would we come as far as would we do it again? Uh, and I mean, I think for me, I would say that the big pro for me is the ritual and routine, especially not having a dog at this time in our household the beyond school schedule or alarm to have a reason to wake up and get outside actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love that. Um, And I really enjoy the time kind of going down the hill and then it gives me the excuse to like, okay, then I should water my citrus trees and have a ritual. Um, So that's been really lovely. I think that we um, enjoy the experience of them, of watching their personalities come to life, just listening to their various sounds. I I found out that chickens make apparently 30 different expression words or syllables. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, they have different sounds for alarms and contentment and the I laid an egg dance sound and all that stuff, which is fun. Um, I think the loss has been sad, but it's a part of life. So it's not something that I like regret. Um, I think the egg collection is fun and I would say I would do it again and I plan to get more chicks and bring them back up to like a maybe around 20 20 chicks yeah I think we're gonna get probably four more in the spring and I don't know if we'll go from chick chicks again that was really fun Um, but then there's the whole I guess this will be the 2.0 podcast of like introducing right Um, you know new chickens to your flock you have to be mindful about how you do that, especially they've had a year together now to get used to each other. They've developed their own pecking order, and then you're going to throw some new guys into the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we will be adding four more um, come spring for sure. I can't resist the chick bins at the feed store. You know, you just <laughs> see them. And like, Noah, and then May yeah, will be reaching. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they love going there already. Um, I love the sense of responsibility that it's taught with Noah. Like he'll actually go out there himself um and he will you know he can't fill their water because i don't think he can open it but he'll grab the water to be filled mm-hmm. he can scoop their food and um i mentioned him feeding the little pop worm treats he'll go out after dinner and like dump whatever scraps out um he'll collect the eggs so it's been really fun and i assume that will continue um hopefully to be something we can do together Um, And then the part I wouldn't do again is the mobile part of the coop. Um, I would skip that altogether unless I had more space on which to have it mobile. Um, And I would for sure keep them fenced off of my patio so I don't have to spray it down every single day for poop. I was, I mean, I knew that they pooped everywhere, but that would be like the biggest, like, yeah, that's a lot more poop than I anticipated. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. Hopefully y'all enjoyed today's episode on updates on homesteading such and all of our chicken experience. Uh, As always, if you enjoy the podcast, go on over to wherever you're listening. Leave us a five-star review about what you're liking about the Naturally Nourished podcast. 
And uh, we don't have that many links, but links for today's show notes will be on naturallynourishedrd.com or wherever you're listening if you click on the episode details. And that's where we'll put uh, the various links to the feed and other resources mentioned. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.